0: Hey, it is good to see all of you this morning. Are are you getting ready for Christmas? Huh? Are you getting ready? All right. I mean, we are, what, uh, a little over a a week away. I don't know about you, um, but as I think about Christmas and I reflect back over a multitude (laughs) at this stage of the game, a multitude of Christmases that uh, I've had the privilege of enjoying there are some that stand out more than others. How about you? Is that true with you too? Can you remember some more than others? Uh, one I remember particularly, I don't remember how old I was, but I know I was, I was a little guy. And we often went to one of my aunt or uncle's homes for Christmas. And in this particular occasion, we were at my Aunt Kathy's. And we usually went out uh, to, well, I don't know if you guys remember in the lower 48, a place called Bob's Big Boy. Yeah? yeah? All right. Yeah. Bob's Big Boy. Um, and uh, then we'd go back, we'd open gifts on Christmas Eve. But I remember arriving earlier in the afternoon before dinner, and there was this package under the tree, and it had my name on it. And it was just big enough that I knew there was a Tonka toy in there, like a truck or a crane or, or some piece of construction equipment, right? I was so looking forward to it. I mean, I could barely eat my hamburger. We got back and and everyone was opening their gifts and I was the youngest, okay? and. Uh, I don't know, I went last. And so I say, okay, now don't you call me this. Uh. They say, okay, Toddy. <laughs> yeah, it's time to open your gift. And I remember I'm thinking, oh, this is great. I mean, I can just feel the anticipation. I it, this is, It's as real today as it was then, seriously. And I went and then I just ripped, right? I just ripped that package open and I pulled the top off the box. <sighs> and it was a coat. <laughs> now, I don't know about you, but when you're that age, it's like clothes are like anathema, right? It's just like, no! Maybe I remember it because it was like one of the greatest disappointments. <laughs> but let me tell you about it. Let me tell you a little bit more about it. That quote. First of all, um, you know, because I've shared with you my past and a little bit of my upbringing, I was raised by a single mom. And she worked very hard. I mean, we kind of, she had two nickels to rub together and she worked very hard to provide what she could provide. But up until that point, Okay. Every piece of clothing that I can recall having came from one of my older male cousins. I can't ever recall having a brand new piece of clothing just for me. So it has more significance now than it did back then. right? And second of all, <clears throat> not only was it the first piece of clothing I can ever remember having that was just for me, In other words, it wasn't re-gifted or it wasn't passed down, okay? But I do remember it was a particularly cold, it's all relevant now, okay? Southern California winter. All right? And I can remember wearing that coat and thinking, you know, this is pretty warm um and so looking back on it I think that Christmas was more significant than I realized at the time and I think the same can be true for you and for me, for us this Christmas okay, it can really be more significant than we can even imagine um But maybe in the future, if we have the opportunity to look back, we'll say, wow, that was was a significant Christmas. Now, what is going to make it significant? We don't necessarily know yet, or maybe you do. Maybe some of that's up to you. Or maybe some of that is what God wants you to lean into and live into. But this is what I know. When we think about gifting, and I think about that coat, not the Tonka truck, okay? We think about gifting. God is the ultimate gift giver. Do you know that? He is the ultimate gift giver. Tyler had the Magi up on the platform this morning. And when we think of the story of Christmas, the birth narrative, we think of gift givers. Who do we think? Who do we think about? Yeah, the three kings, the Magi, right? Because they came... And they gave gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh to Jesus as they worshiped him. And so we associate Christmas with gift giving. We think of the Magi as gift givers. But I want us to pause before we get too much farther into our celebration of Christmas this year. And I want us to recognize <clears throat> that God is the ultimate gift giver. Okay? Okay. John 3.16, you're familiar with that verse, aren't you? It says, for God so loved that he what? That he gave. Right? Love, his love, which was a part of his immutable character and nature. God is love. He was compelled to give. Right? Scripture tells us that every good gift comes from God above. He is the ultimate gift giver. For God so loved the world that he gave. Well, well, what did he give? He gave the gift of his only son, Jesus Christ. So that whoever would believe in him would not suffer the penalty for their sins, but have the gift of salvation of forgiveness, of eternal life. Now think about that. As we think about the season of gift giving, what is it that compelled the Magi to come from the East to travel? Scholars think approximately a thousand miles took over three to six months to get there. Right? What, what, What compelled them? Because they understood the significance of the gift. And it's when we understand the significance of the gift from the gift giver in chief. God. Who so loved us. That he gave. The ultimate gift. The gift of his son. That we can't help. But bring what we have in worship and fall on our knees and worship our King, the ultimate gift, God's own Son, Jesus Christ. Tim Keller says it this way. I love this quote. <clears throat> he says, The gospel is this. Are you ready? we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. You see, all of us, to some extent, are like little toddy. We, we have our minds and our hearts set on things we want or we think we need or things that, that give us pleasure or prestige or uh, just things that make us feel good about ourselves or we think will fulfill us and make us whole. For me, as a five or six year old, it was a Tonka truck. But the gift giver, my aunt, knew what I really needed. And not only did she know what I really needed, she didn't want to give me a hand-me-down. She wanted to give me something that was a gift especially for me. Because she loved me. And she knew what I needed the most, even when I didn't realize it. Even like Tim Keller says, you know, we're more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. As a five-year-old, I would have never dared believe that I needed a coat. (laughs) But that's exactly what I needed. The scripture says that when we were lost, separated from God in our sin and our transgression, at just the right time, at just the right time, in the fullness of time, God gave the gift. The gift that maybe we didn't realize we needed or maybe we didn't want, but is the gift that was fitted, that was perfect for us, because God knew what we needed. And that's His Son, Jesus Christ. So I want you to think about that. Okay? Now, what does this have to do with the Magi? Well, the Magi are the gift givers. Let me tell you a little bit about them. We don't know a lot about them. How about that? But what we do know is very impressive. And today I hope, or this morning, I'm going to hope to help you connect the dots. So you can really begin to see the grand narrative, the greater story that Tyler said that God invites us into. Take our story, but to invite us into a much greater story. And, and, and that's his great biblical narrative that starts with creation. And then sin enters the world, and there's the fall. But immediately God is already enacting his plan of salvation. And then ultimately with Christ comes redemption. And as we, the redeemed, wait... In this in-between time, we look forward to the, to the fourth part of the grand narrative, which is restoration. When all things will be as God originally intended. Okay? And we and all of His creation will be glorified. And with Him forever. Okay? So that's the, the big meta-narrative. But as we look into the detail of Scripture, in this case, in in Matthew chapter 2, we can see God at work, and you can see the intricacies and the planning, all that went into this gift that he's given to us, the gift that we desperately needed, even though we may not have known it or wanted it. So let's look here at Matthew 2 quickly, and I want to point out some things. I think that will be helpful for us will be instructive, but will again encourage us to worship Jesus. Matthew 2, verse 1, begins with, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, this is King Herod the Great, and he is part of the Herodian dynasty, and it's, uh, he's introduced to us here, uh, he uh, is a great builder, uh, he is a very narcissistic, sociopathic personality. The most important thing to him is the acquisition and the holding on to power and to his position as king, as we're going to see as we read later in the story. He was loved in in some regards because it was under his direction and guidance that he helped to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, as well as other great engineering feats in the region, the greater region of Palestine. But he was also hated for his ruthlessness and the fact that he represented Rome, Right? He represented the oppression of Rome, and he oppressed in a particularly delightful and, and, and just nasty fashion for him. That was Herod. It's the guy we're talking about here. And his descendants are going to be a part of Jesus' life until his crucifixion. And you know that there is a King Herod, a direct offspring of this Herod, who is a part of the trials that Jesus underwent prior to his crucifixion. So what we're going to see here from beginning to end. The Herods. Sought. To keep. The gift giver. And the gift from the people. Make sense? So. After. After. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea. During the time of King Herod, magi came from the east to Jerusalem. And they asked, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw this star when it rose and have come to worship him. So, the magi. Let me get back to them. Magi are from the east. Most likely an area uh, in the time of, of Jesus... Uh, that we would know as Persia, it would be Iraq, Iran, okay? That general area is where they, they came from. And as I said, it'd be about a thousand mile journey. This happens after Jesus' infancy. He's a, a, a small child. He's not a baby anymore by the time they arrive. Scholars say this could be up to two years after his birth, although... There's differences of opinion. And they come from the East. Now who are they? They are men of great wisdom and knowledge. They're learned. Uh, They were schooled in the law. They were schooled in religious practices. They served as priests. They were historians. They were scientists. In those days, astronomy, the study of The stars was combined with astrology, what the stars are saying. And it was all considered science. And they were schooled in all of these things. In fact, we get two words in the English language from magi. You'll see this. The first one is magician, magi, magician. Because they were... uh, very adept in occult practices, in divination in magical arts that's part of their schooling and their craft okay the second one you get is the word magi or magistrate because they were very adept at administrating the practice of law as magistrates does that make sense? So we can see their impact even to our language today. And so the Magi, they came because they saw the star. Now, if you're looking for biblical reference to this, and you're thinking about how God planned all of this, and in this great biblical narrative, how he was working this out in... Numbers 24:17. It talks about uh, a star, uh, a heavenly uh, celestial object that was uh, from the, the, the scepter of Jacob. OK? A, a prophecy, a reference to the events surrounding Jesus' birth. And so the Magi were looking for this. Now you're asking, how in the world did they know? They were from the east. Well, do you remember at the fall of Judah and the southern kingdom, the Jews were taken into captivity to Babylonia, right? In the Babylonian empire by a king named Nebuchadnezzar. Do you remember that? And, and and the Jews went into captivity. They were taken captive and taken into the Babylonian Empire. Now, if you read Daniel chapter 5 verse 11, you'll recount a story of how Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And he called his wise men, his magi, To the king's court and said, What is this dream I had? Can you interpret it for me? Well, they couldn't. But there was this young man named Daniel. And he served in the king's court as a Jewish, young Jewish man, a Jew in captivity. And God gave him the ability to correctly interpret the king's dream. Well, guess what happened? That brought jealousy, but it also brought a lot of interest. Who is this person? Who is his God? How did he know this? How could he do what we couldn't? His magic, his knowledge, his wisdom is greater than ours. We want to know about his God. And so, no doubt... He began to tell and share about the scriptures, the prophecies, the things that those Jews in captivity held near to themselves the whole time they were in captivity. And it wasn't until later on when the Babylonian Empire was overthrown uh, by King Cyrus and the Persians that Cyrus wrote, uh, uh, he gave a writ and said, you can go back to Jerusalem, you can go back to your place of birth. But only a minority did. The majority of the Jews who were in captivity stayed. They stayed because they had intermarried. Their homes, their work, their livelihood, all of it was there. They didn't want to go back. But a faithful remnant did. But those who stayed continued to influence the area with their, what? Jewish culture and the Jewish scriptures. And so these magi that came from the east would have been wise men who had been influenced from generations of Jewish influence in that region, going all the way back to the captivity. Isn't that interesting? Maybe you knew that, maybe you didn't. I kind of, it gives me chills. Now it gets better. Are you ready? They come, we don't know how many there are. But we know this. We know that they were foreign dignitaries. Now, the Roman Empire had expanded to the west and the north. But not so much into the east. And so the greatest enemies of Rome were on the eastern flank of the empire. Well, whose kingdom was on the eastern flank of the empire? King Herod's. And so he was paranoid. He was always watching. At that time, the greatest empire just to the east uh, was uh, uh, the Parthenians. Okay? And they were always a threat. And so he was aware of that. Now, this was the time, or just after the time, of the census, wasn't it? Remember his birth, Jesus' birth? Joseph and Mary came to the to the town of David, Bethlehem, to register there because that is Joseph's, right? And so, during the time of the census and afterwards, King Herod's army had been dispersed all over his kingdom to enforce the census and to take the census. And so, strategically, militarily at this time, his army was not all in one place was out doing other things, enforcing the rules and the laws and the things of the empire. And here come these foreign dignitaries from the east. The greatest threat to his kingdom and to Rome is from where? The east. And these are the wise men. These are men of renown. People knew about them. And I'm going to tell you why here in a second. Let's read on. In verse 2. Um, he says, And they asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and it have come to worship him. Alright, we've come to worship him. Now, verse 3. When Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. Now, why would Herod be disturbed? All right, here you go. Because in the East, where the wise men come from, no one can become a king unless they have the same knowledge, education, skill, and art, and practice as the wise men themselves. The wise men weren't kings, But their role in the East was they were considered king makers. Nobody became king without their say so. And without their approval. Okay? So why is Herod so disturbed? Because here come the king makers with a great entourage and fanfare into his kingdom to worship the one called the king of the Jews. Which, by the way, it wasn't Herod. You know what Herod called himself? Herod called himself king of the Jews. And now here the wise men come, saying, we've come to worship the one called king of the Jews, and it's not you, and we're the kingmakers." The scripture says, and Herod was greatly disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. Okay? That's what's going on here. You get it? Isn't that cool? And it goes all the way back to the Babylonian captivity of the Jewish people, in the influence of the Jews, in the court of Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. And exerting Jewish influence and tradition and teaching. So that these non-Jews were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, the Jewish King. Isn't that amazing? It's good stuff, huh? Alright, let's read on. When Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law. In other words, he called together his magi. If you will. His wise men. And asked them where the Messiah was to be born. They replied, verse 5, in Bethlehem in Judea. They replied, for this is what the prophet has written. They're referring to the prophecy of Micah. Chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Now you can only imagine. Herod's irate. He's disturbed. His kingdom, his kingship is threatened. In fact, it's been said of Herod. If you just want to know what kind of personality this guy had. Caesar, who was the emperor of Rome at the time of Herod, the Caesar that was reigning at that time said, it's better to be counted as one of Herod's pigs than one of his sons. And he went on to kill his own sons and one of his wives. Because of his paranoia. Does it make sense? So immediately, he wants to hold on to his kingship. He wants to maintain his power, his throne, his authority. Because this new one that the Jesus, the shepherd of Israel, that the Magi have come to worship, is a direct threat to his kingdom. And so he devises a plot, verse 7. Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so I too may go and worship him. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha. All right? Sure. After they heard this, they went on their way, and the star they had seen, when it rose ahead of them, until it stopped over the place where the child was. Not baby, not infant, but child now. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed on coming to the house. They saw the child and his mother Mary, and they bowed down, and they what? They worshipped. Him. I have to tell you something. We live in a culture and a time and a society where there are a lot of king makers. And guess what? They want to influence culture and they want to make you King. So that me gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And you yourself become the object of worship at Christmas. Rather than him. Right? From the time of his birth to the present. There's a plot devised to... to deflect worship away from the true king. And it goes on today. But the Magi went out of their way. Right? And when they saw him, they fell and they worshiped and they gave him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And those gifts were uh, representative of, of, of royalty, deity. That's the gold. And the, the, the frankincense of death, that was a spice that was used for preparing a body for, for death, All right? And myrrh was, was, was uh, it was great. Excuse me, it was royalty, gold was royalty, uh, frankincense was deity, and, and myrrh was used for death, Okay. But all three of them were representative of the role of the true king, the shepherd of Israel, Jesus. He was the king who who would rule with the scepter of Jacob, right? But he would die. He would die. And his body would be prepared with spices prior to his resurrection. And he was worthy of the greatest and most expensive gift, right? The frankincense. All those things. Verse 12, And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Okay? Interestingly, those gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, those gifts that there was no way that the wise men would have known, really uh, foretold the future of this king that they came to worship. Those gifts, many scholars believe, were used by Joseph and Mary to finance their flight to Egypt, their escape. Because when the Magi didn't come back, Herod devised a plot, and he had every baby boy under that age of about two in that area put to death. Because he was so intent on maintaining his power in his kingdom. But God came to them in a dream, and Joseph and Mary took Jesus away to Egypt to safety until King Herod's death. Okay? Until his death. And then he came back. But those gifts that the wise men were used to finance his flight to Egypt. That's what most scholars believe. Isn't that interesting? how that all fits together. As we close today, as we think about God as the ultimate gift giver and Jesus Christ as the ultimate gift, as we're compelled to fall and to worship and to give gifts to Him, what I want to challenge you is is this, that the gift of Jesus Christ, your Savior, Who died for you. The one whose birth you celebrate. It's okay to re-gift him. Amen, amen, right? And he is the greatest gift that anyone could ever give or receive. But there's three things you're going to have to do. If you're going to be like the magi, the gift givers. If you're going to re-gift this Christmas. The ultimate gift of Christ. Number one, like the Magi, you're going to have to go out of your way to worship. Because this season of Christmas is full of distraction. And not only are you going to have to go out of your way to worship, you're going to have to really focus on that and make that your intention. But you're going to have to make Jesus the object of your worship. Because frankly, in the world in which we live, in Western culture and suburban America... There's all kinds of idolatry at Christmas and false worship of false gods. Not the true God. Not Jesus, the Messiah, our Savior. So we have to go out of our way to worship, and when we do, we have to make Jesus the object of our worship. And then we have to overcome the obstacles to worship. Just like the Magi did. They had to overcome a lot of obstacles. The number one obstacle was this. King Herod. Because King Herod wanted to remain king. He wanted to retain power in his kingdom. And the greatest obstacle to your worship of Jesus Christ this Christmas. Is your own kingship over your own lives. It is. Are you going to fight? the good news the gift are you going to resist it are you going to ignore it are you going to be indifferent to it are you going to seek to maintain your own kingdom control of your own life or are you going to fall on your knees and say oh what a gift I didn't want the coat but man I really needed it oh God you're such a loving God oh Jesus I worship you The king who would die for me. I'm compelled to worship you and you alone, and I'm going to sit and get off of my throne of my heart and life, and I'm going to let you rule, King Jesus, be the ruler of my life. And then the fourth thing the quality of the gift. Deserves nothing less than the quality of our gifts back to Him. What did the wise men give? They gave gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. They spared no expense. The greatest thing you could give as you re gift Christmas. Is to give yourself fully back to the one who gave himself to you. You see, you're the most valuable thing. That's why God gave, because he loved you that much. And the invitation that we receive from the Magi is that we too would re gift, we'd re gift ourselves, that we would be present with Christ this Christmas. And that we would be purposeful in our worship. We'd overcome the obstacles that keep us from worshiping him and him alone. And then finally, that we'd be available to him. To give ourselves to his mission, to his message. To give ourselves away in the cause of of salvation, to share with others, those things. So worship team comes forward. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we are just amazed as we look into your word. We can look through history and see how you prepared people and and places and times for the, for the coming of our King Jesus, for his birth. Lord, as by no accident or happenstance, uh, it was in the stars, literally and figuratively, because you placed them there to announce the birth of the greatest gift that anyone can ever receive, the gift of a Savior, the gift of Jesus Christ. Father, would you help us to overcome the obstacles to worship this Christmas? Would you help us to step down from the throne of our own lives and allow Jesus to assert his kingship in our heart and lives? Would you help us, Lord, to give generously back the very thing that we have received from you? And with abandonment, Lord, be a part of your message and your your mission in the world. As individually and together, Father, we want to re-gift Christmas. And when we do so, Lord, we will be doing what you have called us to do as a church. To bring Christ's hope and his healing in his wholeness to our community and to our world. Lord, we ask and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.